Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this inscripturated truth that reveals to us who you are and your purposes for the creation and your way of salvation. Father, as your word goes forth today, may we learn to more fully and more deeply trust in Christ and indeed entrust ourselves to him as the one to whom we have come seeking shelter under his wings. This we pray in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of you know that uh, I am a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth stories. Uh, In fact, I'm not proud of this, but uh, I was once accused of doing my morning devotions uh, out of Lord of the Rings. Uh, So uh, I I don't treat them as sacred scriptures, but I certainly uh, love and appreciate the books. Uh, I really love The Hobbit. I really love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, But there is one thing that I've noticed through the years is really frustrating to a lot of readers of those stories. One thing that is very frustrating uh, to readers, especially readers of The Hobbit, is how often in that story, Bilbo Baggins and his companions, but especially Bilbo, catch unexplainable lucky breaks. Really, the story of The Hobbit is the story of one lucky break for Bilbo after another. Chance always seems to be on Bilbo's side. It's just a series of coincidences, it seems. Again and again, things happen just in the nick of time to save him. Uh, The whole story really seems to happen by chance. In chapter 1, it's by some curious chance, we're told, that Gandalf the wizard arrives at Bag Inn, Bilbo's home. In chapter 2, when Bilbo and his dwarf companions encounter some trolls, Gandalf arrives just in the nick of time to save them. Uh, It seems to be a a, a lucky break. Later, when Bilbo is in a cave, he has a huge stroke of luck, one on which the whole fate of Middle-earth will turn. He's crawling around in the dark, and he comes across, as luck would have it, a cold metal ring. Now, of course, to escape the cave with that ring, he has to have a contest of riddles with the creature Gollum. And once again, luck plays a crucial role. Gollum gives Bilbo a riddle to solve, and a fish splashes in the water at the very moment Bilbo is contemplating how to solve this riddle. And it turns out the correct answer is fish. That fortuitous flapping of of the fish in the water is is just the clue that Bilbo needs to solve the riddle. Then Bilbo is posed with another riddle, and he asks for more time to solve the riddle, only to realize that time is the answer to the riddle. In another situation, Bilbo and his party are trapped in treetops with wolves down below, but it just so happens that the great eagles are nearby and can come to their rescue once again, just in the nick of time. When they get over the mountains, Gandalf says it's only been by good management and good luck. They accidentally end up in Bayorn's land, but this is another lucky break because Bayorn ends up coming to their aid in a time of crisis. When Gandalf uh, departs from Bilbo and the dwarves, he wishes them a tremendous slice of luck. And they get it. 
Several times from that point on, the narrator of the story knows that they get off by sheer luck. Once and again, they have these close scrapes and they escape just by luck, it seems. So the narrator admits that luck of an unusual kind was with Bilbo in that time. When faced with the dragon smog, Bilbo recognizes that defeating this dragon and reclaiming the treasure will obviously depend, as he says, on some new turn of luck. And guess what? They get that new turn of luck. In fact, several turns of luck enable them to defeat the dragon. And then we get to the end of the story. We come to the end of the story and we find that this luck is not mere luck. More than luck has been going on. More than luck has been at work. The very tail end of the story is Gandalf is uh, journeying back to Bilbo's home with him. Gandalf says to Bilbo, you don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? Or what is that something more? beyond luck. What power or force is at work? Well, at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, we're given a hint. Uh, the ring has now been passed on from Bilbo to Frodo, and Gandalf is telling Frodo the history of the ring. And he says to Frodo, behind that, there was something else at work beyond the design of any ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker, in which case you were meant to have it. And that, Gandalf says, is an encouraging thought. In fact, in the story, Tolkien uh, italicizes that word meant twice because it, it, it clearly implies something more going on. That word meant implies a hidden higher power at work, a hidden higher power with intentions, purposes, and even control over his creation, over Middle Earth. And of course, actually, if you really get into Tolkien and you read the Silmarillion, uh, you know that Middle Earth is actually a theistic world. It's a world ruled by a god, a world created by a personal god, spoken or actually sung, uh, actually sung into existence by the power of this god. And so what Tolkien has been calling luck, what the characters in the story have been calling luck all along, these fortuitous events, these escapes just in the nick of time, these apparent chance coincidences, they're not actually governed by chance at all. They are actually divine providences. No human hand is involved, and that's why they appear to be luck. That's why they appear to be coincidence. That's why they appear to be chance. No human hand is at work. But there is an invisible hand at work, shaping the story, guiding its characters, accomplishing his own purposes. God is never named in Tolkien's story, but he's never very far away. His presence is hidden, but he's never absent. Uh, I've often wondered if Tolkien actually got the idea to write his story in this kind of way and to use the language of luck because of the way the story in the book of Ruth is told. Tolkien was a Christian, very familiar with the scriptures, and it's very interesting what happens here in Ruth chapter 2. 
Remember how Ruth opens. There has been a, what you could call a triple tragedy. A death of crops, a death of a husband, and a death of two sons. It's a triple tragedy. Uh, Chapter 1 is a story of famine and death. A famine drives Elimelech's family down into Moab where all the men die. And after being there for about 10 years, Naomi decides it's time to return home. And Ruth insists on accompanying her. And as Naomi returns, she laments all she has lost, how she went out full but is coming back empty. Don't call me Naomi pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. These two women are destitute. Well, as they get back to Bethlehem, Ruth realizes that as a matter of survival, she's going to have to go into the fields and glean. She's going to have to become a gleaner to go gather food for her and Naomi. And look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. She set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And the text says she happened upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened upon Boaz's field. Now, you have to understand, the translators have have really cleaned this up for us. Uh, The Hebrew word here really uh, could just as easily be translated. She chanced upon Boaz's field. Verse 3 could be translated, as luck would have it, she entered into the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It just so happened. It's luck, it's chance, is what the writer's saying. But of course, there's no doctrine of luck in the Old Testament. There is no doctrine of chance in the Bible. Luck and chance are pagan concepts, not biblical concepts or Christian concepts. Nothing just happens. Nothing is a mere accident. And so what is the author of Ruth, Samuel or Solomon or whoever it was, what is the author of Ruth doing? He is using that same literary technique that Tolkien uses. This is highly ironic. He says it's chance because it's anything but chance. He says it just so happened because there's no human design here. There's no human intent at work. Ruth did not intend to find Boaz's field. Naomi did not intend for this to happen. No human character in this story planned it this way. From that standpoint, it was a stroke of luck, a a happy accident, a coincidence, you might say. But when the narrator tells us that Ruth chanced upon Boaz's field, he's really winking at us. He's really winking and grinning at us. As in the universe of Middle Earth, so in our universe, there is a higher hidden power at work. A higher hidden power always at work behind the scenes. Some invisible hand always orchestrating events so they fall out exactly as they must according to his eternal counsel and purpose. This is actually not some curious chance event where Ruth stumbles into Boaz's field just in the nick of time. It's not mere luck. It's anything but luck. Ruth was meant to find Boaz's field. And Boaz was meant to meet Ruth there. And that is an encouraging thought. These things don't happen merely by luck for Ruth's sole benefit. They're part of a story. The great storyteller is orchestrating 
for his purposes, to show his way of salvation. Ruth's adventures in gleaning and the relationship with Boaz that will follow is not a matter of mere love. And it's not for her sole benefit. This is divine providence. This is redemptive history. This is the divine storyteller weaving events together to suit his purposes, to fulfill his plans for his people in history. And so it is in our lives. We have things in our lives that happen that uh, turn out to be very fortuitous that were not part of anybody's design. We didn't intend them. We didn't mean for these things to happen ourselves. Fortuitous events that we didn't plan. That job offer that just fell into your lap because of some unforeseen meeting that you had. Or some unexpected meeting with the person that it turns out you later would marry. (laughs) Things like this happen in our lives all the time. They feel like chance because there's no element of human design involved. And the pagans would ascribe these things to some blind force called luck. But we know better. We know this is all the work of a God who is authoring the stories of our lives. All of these things are the work of God happening according to his plan. He is the Lord of the story. That's who God is. He is the Lord of the story. We live our lives. We plan our steps. We make free and responsible decisions. But God is the one who authors the story of our lives. And indeed, as Psalm 139 says, every day of our lives is written in his book of providence before one of them comes to be. We are characters in God's story. Actors in his drama. Set on the stage of his play living out a script he's already written. And so that means the things that happen to you, well, they were meant to happen. They're part of God's plan. They're intended by God, scripted by him into the story, ultimately for his glory, but also for the good of his people. And yes, that is an encouraging thought to know that God means for these things to happen. When Ruth went out to glean, she was just looking for grain. And so uh, she she was looking for grain so she and Naomi would not starve. They don't want to starve to death, so Ruth goes out to glean. She had no way of knowing all that was being set in motion by her trip into the fields. How the dominoes were about to fall. Because she's going to find a whole lot more than grain in that field. Now before we go further into the story. Let's talk about gleaning for just a few minutes. Let's shift gears. We've seen how the narrator sets this up. This is obviously God at work doing something astounding. Ruth goes out to glean. What do we know about gleaning? What can we say about gleaning? Well, gleaning uh, is required. It was required in the Old Testament law. Uh, as a way of caring for the poor so the rich could care for the poor. Gleaning is one of the many ways we can see the wisdom and compassion of God revealed in his law. Many times today, God's law is attacked. Many times today, the Old Testament law takes a beating. People will say, oh, that Old Testament law was cruel and harsh and unloving and bloody. But in reality, if you really study the law out, you see the exact opposite is the case. It's full of righteousness, wisdom, mercy, compassion. God's law is better than any law code we can come up with ourselves apart from his law, apart from being informed or or, or 
guided by his law. There is far more wisdom and compassion in Torah's way of caring for the poor than anything our social engineers in Washington, D.C. can come up with in the welfare state. Far more wisdom and compassion in the Torah than anything you'll find in the law codes put out in D.C. The practice of gleaning, if you want to read about it further, it's described in some detail in passages like Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 23. And let me just give you a hint here of how this system worked and the beauty of it, the wisdom of it. On the one hand, gleaning required the landowner to be compassionate because the landowner was required to leave the edges of his fields unharvested. And so a portion of his land could not be used to maximize his personal profit, but rather had to be used to serve the common good of the wider community. Torah certainly establishes the right to personal property. No doubt about that. Thou shalt not steal. That's private property right there, the right to private property established. But it also shows us, the same Torah also shows us that right to your property is not absolute. Ownership is really stewardship. What you own, yes, you own, but ultimately, in a more ultimate sense, it belongs to God. And the gleaning law shows that. The gleaning law presupposes that. On the other hand, the gleaning system requires something of the poor. The gleaner did not just get a free handout. There's no subsidizing laziness here. The gleaner had to glean, which is actually very hard work. In some ways, even harder than the normal work of harvesting the fields. So the poor could be fed. The poor are not going to starve to death. They have a, a, a way of providing for themselves, but only by taking some initiative and making some effort on their own. And so gleaners are not allowed to develop a sort of victim mindset. There's no culture of dependency where you have this permanent dependent class. That, that's not envisioned in the gleaning system. The gleaner can preserve his own dignity and his self-worth by working for himself, to provide for himself, and yet he is also offered the compassion and the mercy of others. Note only the edges of the field are available for gleaning under the gleaning system. So the property owner is not going to be taken advantage of. And at the same time, the poor, of course, are still incentivized to ultimately find better work to provide for their own needs. So th this is nothing like some kind of massive wealth redistribution scheme. No, but this is a way of bringing rich and poor together. This is not a system that in any way is based on greed or driven by envy. In fact, I would say the gleaning system properly and beautifully balances everything that you need to balance in order to have a just society. In order to maintain a just society, you have to balance certain things and hold them in tension. The gleaning system does that. And so just to give you some examples of this, property rights are balanced with compassion. Individual liberty is balanced with communal responsibility. The gleaning system creates a sense of brotherhood, a sense of brotherhood between rich and poor. So instead of class warfare, you have cooperation. Uh, Proverbs 22 verse 2 says, rich and poor have this in common, the Lord is the maker of them all. The gleaning system, indeed the Torah as a whole, leaves no room for class warfare. Israel was not a welfare state in any kind of way, but it was a state that provided very capably 
for the poor. Further, in the gleaning system, it's interesting to note this, the government is not involved at all. There's no bureaucracy of social workers. There's no federal department of gleaning down in Jerusalem. There are no forms to fill out. It's all relational and neighborly. It's face to face. If you are a rich landowner, you are taking care of the poor who live near to you. You're personally caring for them. And the poor at the same time can look to you as the landowner who has left the edges of your field unharvested and they can personally thank you for your generosity, your compassion, your fulfillment of the law. And so rich and poor, instead of being set against each other, are actually brought into contact with one another. And it's a mutually beneficial, mutually supportive relationship. Deuteronomy 24 verse 19 says, the gleanings shall be for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. The gleanings were for the poor. The gleanings were especially for the least of these, those most likely to be marginalized and, and, and left out of the wider economy. The gleanings are there for the taking, for their support. And of course, Ruth fits at least two of those categories there in Deuteronomy 24. She is an immigrant and a widow. Now, it would be great to think out modern-day applications of the gleaning system, and I would encourage you to do that, but I want us to continue on with the story here. Ruth has just happened to end up gleaning in Boaz's field. Now, who is Boaz? We got a brief introduction to Boaz at the beginning of the chapter when the narrator mentions him. We don't yet know what his role in the story will be. We don't know what part he will play in this story. But the way he is described is intriguing and promising. He is a relative of Naomi through her deceased husband, Elimelech. He's described as a man of great wealth. Uh, that's how the New King James puts it. A man of great wealth. He's also described as a worthy man. That's how the ESV puts it. Another commentator calls him an honorable gentleman or a nobleman. These are all ways of, of capturing what is said about Boaz, but I don't think any of them really get to the heart of it. I don't think they really get to the essence of it. The word that is used to describe Boaz, maybe it could be rendered this way. He is described as a mighty man of strength. The term that is used to describe Boaz here describes his status, his character, and his competency all rolled into one. Boaz here is presented as the model man. His status, his character, and his competency are all put on display here. He is a wealthy man. He is a man of considerable means. That becomes obvious as the story unfolds. He is the wealthy landowner. But it's not just his wealth. It's not just his material resources that are in view. The term here also describes him as a valiant, brave warrior. Perhaps he has done heroic exploits on the battlefield. He has a reputation for courage and ability and competency. Further, he is a man of great character, a man of integrity and righteousness, a man of justice and wisdom, a man characterized by covenant faithfulness, a man characterized by hesed, that term that describes the Lord's loving kindness and the loving kindness that his people are to display. He is a man who lives according to the law of God. He is a hero of a man. 
a hero of heroes. He is all that a man should be. And we will see the shape that his heroism takes over the course of this story. He is indeed going to be heroic. Now, Ruth is out in his field gleaning, and Boaz happens to stop by. Boaz greets his reapers with a liturgical formula that uh, should sound familiar to all of us. He says, the Lord be with you, and they respond, the Lord bless you. There's this back and forth greeting that shows you this is a godly man with a godly household. The very way they greet each other shows you that uh, they are trusting in the Lord. They are seeking to be obedient to the Lord. Then he seeks to get more information about this woman that he has noticed out in his field, and he finds out her story, how she came back from Moab with Naomi, uh, how hard she has been working. And so Boaz approaches her, and I want you to see this. The book of Ruth obviously honors women of faith. All of Scripture does. But the book of Ruth in particular honors and celebrates and glorifies women of faith. This book is named after a woman. It tells the story of two women. But there's more than just that, more than just what you might notice on the surface. The women in this story are treated with the utmost respect and honor. They are valued and honored throughout this story. And that's so important to see because the idea is common out there. The idea is common that the whole history of the world is the story of men oppressing women that the whole history of the world is uh, one of men oppressing women. Men have always been oppressors and, and women have always been victims and that's just the way it is. That has been true in many places throughout history, sadly. This story shows us something different though. This story shows us that in cultures shaped by the law and word of God, that is not true. Misogyny, any kind of mistreatment of women is, is never uh, endorsed in any kind of way in Scripture. Just the opposite. And you see that here. Boaz, who is presented to us as this model man, this ideal man, this hero of a man, treats this vulnerable woman, Ruth, with the utmost respect, kindness, humility, generosity, compassion. He will do everything in his power to protect her and provide for her. And he is set forth as the model man. This is how the model man engages with women. Boaz doesn't take advantage of Ruth in this story at any point along the way, even though he could have if he had been that kind of man. But he's not. He's not that kind of man. He does everything according to the law of God, acting with perfect integrity towards her. Instead of exploiting her or taking advantage of her in any kind of way, he protects her and he provides for her. And why does he protect her and provide for her? Because he values and respects her. Because that's what godly men do. That's how godly men treat women. So, so look at what he does here. He addresses her as my daughter. He addresses her as my daughter, as if he is adopting her into his own household. And not only that, but you really could say he goes above and beyond the requirements of the law in the charity and generosity that he shows to Ruth. He grants her, you might say, most favored gleaning status. He treats her with uh, such favor and kindness. He says, don't go into another field. 
He wants to protect her. He says, stay close to the other women of my household. He guarantees her safety. He promises her safety as she gleans, which I'm sure was not always the case. He gives her water drawn by the young men. In verse 16, he tells his workers even to let a little extra grain fall for Ruth to pick up as she comes by. So she'll have an extra successful gleaning day. In fact, she ultimately comes back with so much grain. It's simply astounding to Naomi that she could gather up that much grain. But this is because Boaz is taking care of her. Ruth certainly realizes how unusual this favor is, especially since she is a foreigner. She has been a stranger to the covenants of promise, an outsider, but now she's being brought in. She's being treated as an insider by Boaz. And she is absolutely astonished by this. She asks, why me? Why are you showing such favor to me? And this is how it always is with recipients of grace. Have you noticed this? Again and again, we see this in scripture. People are so astonished when they are granted grace by the Lord. It's how Mary is when the angel comes to her and tells her that she will give birth to the Lord's Messiah. She's amazed at the grace that's been shown to her. I just noticed this recently with Jordan Peterson. I, don't, I still don't know exactly where Jordan Peterson is spiritually, but it seems like he's moving. If he's not in the kingdom, he's not far from it. But in a recent interview, he, he says, I am astonished at my own belief as he breaks down in tears and, and, and weeps over the glory of who Jesus is, what he's learning about the Christ. Astonished by his own belief. That's what it means to be a recipient of grace. It means you are absolutely astonished that this grace and this mercy has been extended to you. Well, why is Boaz doing this? He, he, he's treating her with this kind of kindness and respect. Okay, there's no misogyny here, nothing but respect and value being shown towards this woman. He's showing her kindness. He is showing her this favor, making sure that she is protected and will be provided for. Why is he doing this? Well, Boaz tells her. He answers that question. He says he has taken notice of her faithfulness in coming to Bethlehem with Naomi, in leaving her father and mother and the land of her birth. Boaz actually makes Ruth sound a lot like Abraham who left his homeland to go to the place where God would show him. So it is with Ruth. She is a woman of faith. Boaz recognizes this. Boaz recognizes Ruth has become a true disciple. She has paid the cost of discipleship. She has left all behind to become a follower of Yahweh. She has made great sacrifices. And so he says to her, may the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz describes the Lord as a great bird who has spread out his wings. And Ruth has come running to the Lord for shelter, taking refuge under his wings. Boaz can see this is what Ruth has done. Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. She has cast herself upon the mercy of God. She has said, said, I am utterly dependent upon the grace and mercy of Yahweh for my life and my salvation. 
She's made a clean break with her own people, even her own family and her own land. And she has made herself completely reliant on the kindness and mercy of Yahweh and Yahweh's people. And as the story continues, we see a relationship between Boaz and Ruth begin to blossom. As the story goes on, we find, yes, he gives to her water drawn by his men. He provides water for her. As as the story goes on, we find that Boaz shares a meal with her, a meal of bread and wine. Ruth is a model of faithfulness. We really saw that last week. But Boaz is a model of faithfulness as well. He's a hero. She's a heroine. It's almost as if they belong together. And of course, that's ultimately what's going to happen. Boaz is a man who embodies the purpose of Torah. He enacts everything Moses wrote about, particularly everything Moses wrote about caring for foreigners and widows. Ruth has shown great kindness to Naomi, and now Boaz shows great kindness to Ruth. And in fact, we can say, really, Boaz's kindness to Ruth is really the Lord's kindness to Ruth. Behind Boaz's kindness to Ruth is the Lord's kindness to Ruth. The Lord is kind to people like Ruth. And that's coming to expression in the way Boaz, as the Lord's servant, serves Ruth. Boaz, you could even say, becomes an image of the Lord, a living icon of the Lord God of Israel. Again, an embodiment of the Torah. And so just as Ruth has fled for shelter under the wings of the Lord in chapter 2, so in chapter 3, she will seek shelter under the wings of Boaz. And so if you jump ahead in this story to Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, she comes to him and she says to him, take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Remember, Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. We've been told that, and that means he might very well be in a position to play the part of a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. He's a potential kinsman redeemer which means he would be able to marry Ruth and raise up a son to take the place of the deceased and to claim Elimelech's inheritance and to continue the family name. We'll look at all of those things when we get there. There's going to be a few twists and turns in the story along the way, but we've been set up for that even here. Now think about Boaz for just a minute. Last time we really focused in on Naomi and Ruth. Think about Boaz here for just a minute as we wrap this up. Look at what all Boaz is doing. Let's recap it. Boaz is a mighty warrior, a man of wisdom and righteousness. Boaz is a man who shows compassion even to a Gentile woman, even giving water to a Gentile woman and sharing a meal with a woman who has a questionable past. He embodies the goodness of Torah in every way. He uses his riches and strength to serve others. He's a kinsman of a family in great need and therefore a potential redeemer. He could possibly become a husband to a bride in need and raise up the dead by continuing his line, a resurrection, as it were, of Elimelech's line. Does Boaz remind you of anyone when we describe him that way? Does Boaz remind you of anyone? Well, of course he does. 
He points us to Jesus. He reminds us of Jesus. Jesus is a mighty man, a great hero of a man. Jesus is a man full of compassion and kindness, a man who one time drank water with a woman in John chapter 4, a, a, a Gentile Samaritan woman. Uh, he often ate and drank and would eat and drink with women of questionable backgrounds. Jesus is the fulfillment and embodiment of God's law in human form. In his whole life, he's overflowing with the wisdom and compassion and kindness and love of God. And of course, Jesus uses his power and his riches in order to serve others, to meet the needs of others. He is a redeemer. He marries the widow God's people and raises up a, a, a new line to carry on the family name. He resurrects the dead, as it were. You know, last week we saw how Naomi really pictures Israel for us in this story. Naomi's really a picture of the plight of Israel. Well, so we can say Boaz is really a picture of Jesus for us. Boaz is a Christ figure. Indeed, Boaz is royalty. He is a prince of a man, and he's going to bring Ruth into that line. And together, they will become the great-grandparents of King David. Boaz acts like royalty, and royalty will come from him. And really, this gets us to the heart of this book. What is the theme of the book of Ruth? What is it all about? The whole book is about Ruth seeking shelter, seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord and then seeking shelter and seeking refuge under the wings of Boaz. And we come to find that really the wings of the Lord are the wings of Boaz and the wings of Boaz are the wings of the Lord. Seeking shelter under the wings of another is making a covenant like a marriage. Again, think about Ruth. She was an outsider and a widow who is brought into the family and the covenant. You know, at this point in the story, when Boaz says to Ruth, you have sought shelter under the wings of the Lord, what Boaz is really saying to Ruth is you are now married to the Lord. He has spread his wing over you. He's brought you into his covenant. You're already married to the Lord. You've taken shelter under the Lord's wings. You're one with him. You have joined yourself to the Lord and to his people. Remember what she said back in chapter 1 to Naomi. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Martin Luther said the whole gospel consists in those possessive personal pronouns, my and our. God says you are my people, and we say to God, you are our God. And we look out at the church and we say, this is my people. That's the whole gospel. The gospel is when God becomes your God and his people become your people. And that's what's happened. With Ruth, she has joined herself to the Lord and to his people. She's taken shelter under the Lord's wings. She's married to the Lord. And before the story is over again, while there will be some suspenseful twists and turns along the way, she's going to marry Boaz as well, taking shelter under his wings also. 
This is Ruth's story. She seeks shelter under the wings of the Lord and under the wings of Boaz. And this is a story that recurs in various ways all throughout the scriptures. This is really the story of that woman we read about today in Luke chapter 8. That story of a woman with a flow of blood who comes up to Jesus and grabs hold of his garment. The way the Old Testament would have described that, she grabs hold of the wing of his garment. Because in the Old Testament, the way the clothing is described, the garments that the men would wear have wings. And she grabs hold of the wing of his garments. And taking shelter under his wings, she finds healing in the wings of the Lord, just as Malachi prophesied. She has taken shelter under the Lord's wings, and so she finds healing. This is Ruth's story. This is that woman's story. This is our story as well, because this is exactly what God has done for us. We have taken shelter under the wings of the greater Boaz. We have taken shelter under the wings of the Lord. And so our lives are hidden with God in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3. We have taken shelter under Christ's wings, and so we know he will protect and provide for us as his bride. He is our mighty hero. He is our redeemer. He is the one who gives us water and bread and wine. He is the one who brings us into his royal family. We were outsiders, strangers to the covenants of promise. And he has brought us into his kingdom. He's made us into a kingdom of priests. And so now all that is his is ours. And all that is ours is his. And so he pays off our debts. And he shares his great riches with us. He is our God and we are his people. We have found shelter and refuge under his wings. That is our hope. Christ became our kinsman in the incarnation so he could become our redeemer on the cross. He became one of us that he might save us. Even as Boaz was one of Elimelech's clan, so he could redeem Elimelech's clan. So Jesus entered into our clan, the human family, in order to redeem us and bring us to himself. In verse 20, Naomi recognizes what God is doing. She says, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness, that is his hesed, to the living and the dead. For she says, this man is a close relation of ours. This man is a close relation of ours. This is now what we can say of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a close relation of ours. God has not forsaken the living or the dead because he has given us Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer. The Lord is showing his hesed to Naomi and Ruth through the hesed of Boaz. And Boaz's hesed foreshadows the hesed of Jesus. This hesed, this covenant Faithfulness, this loving kindness is now ours in him because we have found shelter under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.